Welcome to season four of The Empty Chair, a podcast from Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn SA. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from the symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with rights activists from Egypt, writer and blogger Allah Abdel Fattah, human rights lawyer Mohamed El-Bakir, and blogger Mohamed Oxygen Ibrahim. In December 2021, all three men were sentenced to several years imprisonment by Egypt's Emergency State Security Court because of their writings and activism. Penn International believes that their convictions followed an unfair trial before an exceptional court and are acts of retaliation for their legitimate practice of the right to freedom of expression. Penn South Africa and Penn International call on the Egyptian authorities to quash the convictions, drop all charges against them and immediately and unconditionally release them. You can read more about the intricacies of their cases in the show notes. In this episode, I interview my friend and a mentor, historian Siraj Rasool, about District 6 in Cape Town, an area made famous both by its extraordinary spectrum of diversity and by the immense cruelty of apartheid forced removals, reducing through bulldozers and brute force that vibrant inner-city neighborhood home to more than 60,000 people into an empty, desolate, rubble-filled landscape. We talk about the neighborhood's beginning, the political tragedy of its demise, the rich complexity of its cultural and political life, artists that emerged during and after forced removals to narrate it just as it was vanishing, and how it remains one of South Africa's most enduring symbols of the tyranny of apartheid. We talk about how much was lost, how people struggled and fought to protect its memory, what may lie ahead, and how heritage and museum work have both changed and were changed by District 6. We even managed to fit in a bit about the US, about the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in New York, which in some ways mirrors the practices of the District 6 Museum. I'm Nadia Davids and I'm a writer and an academic, and both my research and creative work engages the landscape of District 6 past and present. Siraj Rasool is a widely published senior professor of history at the University of the Western Cape, and also teaches museum and heritage studies and curatorship. His research is on museumology, race in museums, restitution, political movements, and the politics of non-racialism. And he served on the boards of the District 6 Museum and Eco Museum in South Africa, and is currently on the New South African Advisory Board for Restitution and Reparation. Forced removals represented an attempt to sever people's ties with a place, to create such disjunctions that people would not remember and that people would develop attachments to other places. What's interesting is how this was never the case. It was a particular pleasure to have this conversation with Siraj because he shaped so much of my thinking around the district and his extraordinary scholarship and all its intellectual rigor and humanity has been a primary source for my own research. If it sounds like we go way back, it's because we do. Our families have known each other for three generations and were in and out of each other's homes in the district. 
And Siraj has always struck me as someone who holds that silvery, elusive space between the last moments of that neighborhood and what it may become in the future. And that's because you'll see from the interview, he was a boy when the district was destroyed, and his life's work in part has been about reconstructing it through scholarship. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Siraj, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a particular privilege, both because I think that you always offer such a vast and beautiful narration that is deep and profound around the history of the district, but also because I get to be in conversation with somebody that I think of as a mentor and a friend, and certainly somebody who has shaped my understanding of the district as a landscape both of loss and possibility in the most meaningful ways since I was a girl, not just a scholar. So thank you very much for being here. So today we're going to be speaking about District 6, about the politics and poetics of the space, about processes of memorializing it, and let's see where the conversation goes. And I thought that a possibly quite generative place to begin would be by reading two extracts from Rice's from and of the district, who narrated it both in a moment of looking back and also in a moment of destruction. And so I have two extracts, one from Richard Reeves' Buckingham Palace District 6, which narrates his time at this particular juncture as a young boy. And the second is from Alex de Goomer's In the Fog at the Season's End, where there's a small extract that details somebody who's undergoing the process of forced removals. And here they are from Richard Reeve. I remember those who used to live in District 6, those who lived in Caledon Street and Clifton Hill and busy Hanover Street. There are those of us who still remember the ripe, warm days. Some of us still romanticize and regret when our eyes travel beyond the dead bricks and split tree stumps and wind-tossed sand. When I was a boy and chirruping 10, a decade after the end of the Second World War, when I was Tarzan and Batman and could sing Rainbow on the River like Bobby Breen, in those red, white and blue days, I remember especially the weekends, which began with the bustle of Friday evenings when the women came home early from the factories and the men came home late, although they'd already been paid off early, and the feeling of well-being and plenty in the house on the upper left-hand side of Caledon Street near St. Mark's Church. And then a section from Alex Laguma. An old woman was sitting in an old jack chair in the middle of a crowd amongst a pile of furniture. The canvas of the chair was worn where it was folded around the supporting slats and the threads hung in dirty streamers. The canvas had been patched and stitched in places and a lot of the stitches had come apart so it looked as if the old woman would slide right through the chair at any moment. The old woman did not move. She just sat there in the middle of the crowd with the furniture and stared straight ahead. Pots and pans with dented containers, a broken sewing machine with split cover, a chipped washstand set, the handle missing from a chamber pot, basins and jars and canisters, armchairs and bed springs, rickety bedsteads all heaped haphazardly around the old woman ready for loading so that she sat in a lager of second-hand household goods. The shifting crowd gathered around and looked at the old woman sitting there in the barricade of furniture. So just those two extracts, I think, and extraordinary in some ways how timeless the Laguma section is when we think about the refugee crisis, forced removals, the detritus of trace, people moving against their will. And I remember you once describing what happened in the district as a war crime. And I've always sort of retained that, that particular phrasing of it. And so I'd like to open by 
asking you about what your sense of the district is today when you drive past or walk past. When I drive through District 6, sometimes stopping at different sites, unfortunately, I do so as the little boy who went to school in District 6, who is able to retrace his steps and think about days on the playground. But I also encounter District 6 as a scholar, and I do so with all of my scholarship on the area and on apartheid and forced removals and on the history of Cape Town. I also do so as someone who was a trustee of the District 6 Museum for 22 years and who was extremely fortunate to get to work with an extremely exciting, engaged group of activists in their senior years who had come out of the hustle and bustle of struggle organizations and in the liberation movement in the 1940s and the 1950s, from whom I learned about museums. So when I go through the district, I think about my family in different parts, my father's family who came from Caledon Street, my mother's family who came from Chapel Street, but who then got to live on the Zonnebloom estate because of their own family connection to the Anglican Church. I think about my Aunt Naz Ghoul Ibrahim, who was one of the leaders of the District 63Rs in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, and who was herself removed, and whose removal was the subject of reflection and representation by artists. And so I have all of these images, I have all of these layers, and if you've driven through or walked through the upper section of District 6 in more recent years, there's been a little bit more excavation. And so you're actually able to see the layering of the homes, you're able to see the foundations, and sometimes walls and material fabric of homes that suggests life, and you, you know that life because there is a body, a rich body of photography of the urban architectural fabric of the area and of people, of life on Richmond Street. And when you drive past Richmond Street or the remains of Richmond Street, you think about those scenes of social life. You know, I mean, I've got very profound memories of walking on Hanover Street, of going to school at Upper Ashley Street and at Chapel Street and at Harold Cressy and walking through the area and doing so at the time of removals, of witnessing the removals. My family had moved out of District 6 before the removals and kind of became middle class. But those removals occurred in front of our eyes and it was absolutely horrendous. And yes, it can be understood, certainly, as a war crime. I mean, it was an absolute devastation of people's lives. And that a removal that took place at a time in order to supposedly create a white group area. But by that stage, apartheid had undergone 
one of its shifts in its alliances. And so actually, truth be told, the constitution of the white group area never really happened, apart from some blocks of flats, apart from the imposition of the architectural monstrosity of what was then the Cape Technicon, which ironically used some of the material fabric of the old homes in its very construction. Apart from that, District 6 has remained a scar. It has remained this empty void, its emptiness and its vacantness itself being the memorial. Except for the mosques and a few churches to which people came on Fridays and Sundays, St. Mark's Anglican Church, the Muir Street Mosque. People continued to worship in these churches. I mean, St. Mark's Anglican Church is very peculiar, and anyone who drives up what is now perversely called New Hanover Street, which had been called Kaisergracht before, you will see that Cape Peninsula University of Technology built around the church, as if the church has stood there representing what District 6 was. And you actually have a battle over memory right there in that urban landscape, in the layering, and in the way in which people have continued to lay claim to the area by creating a memorial cairn that was recently violated by the Cape Peninsula University of Technology in its construction of a student residence. And so the struggle over District 6 has not ended. It is still ongoing. And these are the reasons why we have problems with the restitution process. Restitution process is so complicated because the authorities treat District 6 as parcels of property and not as landscape. And it's very important for us to think of this as a landscape of memory. The authorities are thoroughly unable to deal with landscapes of complex history. These problems are ongoing, sadly. I mean, Siraj, is such a extraordinary and rich answer. And I was just struck as you were speaking, it's the Eric Kopswim quote where he talks about this profound interface between who we are and what we do, and this child witnessing this devastation and this destruction, and then threading that together with familial relationships with the neighborhood, political education through the process of removal, but also its aftermath. And also just thinking about generationally a kind of a responsibility that your scholarship carries, the bridge between what's come before, where we are now, and what might come in the future. I mean, I think a lot about how in my own experience at the district, of course, and, you know, we have this entangled family history as well, is that the removals ended in 77, which is when I was born. So I never actually saw the district, but my first school of Zonneblum, the playground ended where the district began. And there was always a very, very acute, unsettling, disturbed feeling about what was not there before the landscape was even narrated to us, there was an understanding that this was a space of loss. And so it always seems to me 
that it is impossible to understand Cape Town without understanding the district and without understanding that it constantly articulates the presence of an absence. When you talk about that landscape of memory, that's so precisely what it is. And I want to come back to this idea of how restitution is being thought of as parceling of land, as you describe it, as opposed to a cohesive landscape. But I want to go back to perhaps the idea of memorializing the beginning of the end. You mentioned Naz Gul Ibrahim and what it was that Naz did. Naz embarked on a process by which she memorialized even in the face of destruction. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that process, that very creative response. Yeah, the removals continued in the upper section, in the dry dock section of District 6, until as late as 1983. You know, you're talking about such recent occurrences. And some of the last people to be removed were Naz and her family. Other people in the area who were removed as late as 1983. Naz and her family, as I seem to remember, were removed in 1981. They received their love letter, which is what District 6 people called the letter that you got from what they called the group who gave you the date on which your removal will occur. Naz lived in Manly Villa, and Naz had been activist of sorts who saw herself as carrying the tradition of the ghoul family. The ghouls had been her aunts and uncles. My great aunts and uncles had been sort of leaders of the liberation movement. Sissy was in the ANC, but the others, Jane and Gulam, were in the unity movement. And these were the sections of the liberation movement, and they were the political intelligentsia of the area. Naz saw herself carrying on that tradition, and she was one of the leaders of the Rents, Ratepayers and Residents Association, the three R's, as it was called. And they mobilized people against removals. I mean, they didn't see themselves as a radical movement or as a mass movement. They worked with the liberals and they were kind of moderate, but they had the right amount of anger. And Naz went around the district canvassing people, mobilizing them into the cause. And when their family got their letter, it was Ramadan and Eid was approaching. And so she planned for the Eid celebration to be what she called the Last Supper. Obviously, in Christianity and in the Abrahamic traditions, the idea of a Last Supper is something quite symbolic in all sorts of ways. People were invited, and as they entered the home, they were also invited to inscribe a message on the wall of the soon-to-be-demolished manly villa. And present at the time, we know from the photographs and we also know from the inscriptions, were two artists, Sue Williamson and Peggy Delport. 
And it is highly likely that the filmmaker, Lindy Wilson, was also present. They all knew each other and they were involved with each other in many ways. And the photographs that were, I think, taken by Sue Williamson are extremely poignant. They are of the young people, many of whom you and your parents would know, Drizzy, Shahina, the youngsters, the neighbors, also came in and partook in the meal, made their inscriptions on the wall. And later on, with the assistance of an American writer, Naz wrote a book about these experiences. And the book is called The Writing is on the Wall. A very interesting idea. And she describes the very deliberate ways in which she thought about this as a memorial project. So what I have argued is that many of the methodologies of the District 6 Museum were being enacted in the final stages of the removals themselves. These inscriptive methods that we associate with the District 6 Museum of writing your message on the wall, write your message on the floor, write your message on the cloth. Please come here and interfere with the space. So these soon-to-be-demolished houses were proto-museums in the making as people were living their final parts of their District 6 lives. And it is just absolutely poignant to think about what people felt at the time, what they said to each other, what they thought. From that Last Supper, Sue Williamson went on to put on probably the first instance of installation art in South Africa, in the then Gowlett Gallery, in which District 6 debris from demolished buildings were put on display with some furniture from Naz's home, together with cloth. And all I have are photographs from that event and some descriptions of what happened. To me, it's quite interesting to think what happens when you have the transfer of the furniture from the home into the art gallery and the changes of meanings that occur. And as you know, Sue Williamson has worked with this removal history through at least two more installations, one of which is in the collection of the National Museum of African Art, Smithsonian in DC, and the other of which is in the collection of the Birmingham Art Museum down in Alabama. And that one installation I went to myself and it took place in the Irma Stern Museum. So you have a certain way of appropriating traumatic experience and turning it into art. It makes one really think about the ethics of art making, about the ethics and politics of representation, about what the responsibilities are of the artist, the historian who works with traumatic histories of traumatized people. And I must say, I was absolutely delighted to be present in Sue Williamson's studio with Drizzy or Idrissa and Shahina at the time of the launch of the late Nazgul's book.
in which Sue revealed to Naz's daughters the range of artworks that she had created, including an exhibition that was specially made for the Goodman Gallery, then in District 6, but which described itself as being in Woodstock because the lower part of District 6 got cut off through the building of the boulevard. So you have this District 6 landscape that has suffered from balkanization and from being dispersed. But that lower section needed to be administered as a colored group area. And it was just incorporated into Woodstock. And what was Drizzy and Shahina's response to all these various installations? Well, they were utterly blown away and they were a little shocked. I can say, and truth be told, you know, a photograph of Naz graced the Havana Biennale, a huge banner photograph of Naz Gooley Bryan. An exhibition took place at the Goodman Gallery of these photographs that had been turned into part of an artwork. These are complicated issues of representation. And I, I think that that was kind of Sue Williamson's TRC moment, her own personal TRC moment. And she has subsequently given one of the artworks consisting of a compendium of images to Shahina, who I think donated it to the District 6 Museum. So I'm getting into some depth here, you know, because it's kind of work that I've done. <laughs> no, it's granular. It's a wonderful granular detail. But it's also, you know, I think we have to distinguish between the methods of different kinds of artists. And I think we need to talk about the work that Peggy Delport has done. A mural on the wall of the Catholic Church Hall on Hanover Street and that culminated in the mural, the fresco work in the District 6 Museum interior. And the fact that Peggy Delport is an artist who works collaboratively, you would never be told and nobody would ever make a claim that the streets exhibition and the Digging Deeper exhibition in the District 6 Museum in some ways can be thought of as Peggy Delport installations. But that is not what she would claim, and that is not the work that she does. Those are works that brought together the resources of artists, historians, ex-residents. You've got the resources of memory of politics and education all brought together into what became the District 6 Museum. You've given us an extraordinary connective tissue between those moments in Nazgul Ibrahim's house, in those moments of destruction and inscription all the way through to the museum. And there are a couple of things I want to just pick up on from that is the naming of this moment, the Last Supper, that seems to be quite specifically a District 6 way of thinking about a moment, because of course the Gold Ibrahims are a Muslim family, but there's a sense of freedom in being able to claim a Christian narrative as well. And I've often thought about how, of course, the process by which District 6 is destroyed and the removals happen is to create a white landscape, but it's also because here is an example of a space with a hundred year history of integrated living racially, culturally, um, in terms of a religious space. And this in and of itself is a sort of a direct psychic threat to a government predicated on separation, right? So the destruction has to happen not only to claim land, but also to eradicate the idea of interracial living and an interracial space from 
which a tradition of non-racialism emerges as well. So there's much about the district that is profoundly threatening and needs to be destroyed, right, in that moment. And then the other is this very, very important idea that comes up a lot in current discussions within the academy, within this podcast as well, is about the right to tell, the ownership of story, or what that might mean. How do we talk about who narrates what? For myself, my feeling is always that, and this of course might be a certain amount of generational privilege, is that people can tell whatever story they want. They just have to be prepared to be asked questions about it, and at some level, sometimes to be held accountable. But I'm curious about your sense of how that process of narration has happened for the district. And then also that in some ways the District 6 Museum intervenes in that, in that it tries to bring together a multiplicity of voices around the area. I mean, it's gone through its own permutations and shifts around you know, what it emphasizes, what it doesn't. But I think that the impulse behind the museum is very much about trying to centralize ex-residents' experiences and memories. Yeah, so the concept of the District 6 Museum emerged out of the memory work that was being conducted by the Hands Off District 6 campaign that was created in the late 1980s when Big Capital decided that the District 6 redevelopment problem could be resolved by turning it into an enclave of multiracial middle-class living at a time when apartheid was trying to win over sections of the black middle-class in the tricameral parliament. And by that stage, no architect or engineer in Cape Town would wanted to touch the building of, of houses for white people in District 6. So the Urban Foundation, I think it was BP and other companies came forward and put forward these proposals. The members of the civic association that I was involved with, the Salt River Woodstock Warm Estate Residents Association, who were doing all kinds of projects, decided to take up the District 6 cause. And the Hands of District 6 campaign was created as a project that argued that no redevelopment in District 6 would take place until a democracy is made in South Africa. Under no circumstances would there be any such rogue form of development. That would be another form of window dressing of apartheid. They started interviewing ex-residents and started inscribing cloth. And inadvertently, they called their memory project Museum. District 6 Museum Foundation was created as a project. It was never really intended to be a museum in a building. You know, if you look at the original poster for the streets ex exhibition that opened on the 10th of December 1994, it was only meant to be open for two weeks. It was supposed to then close down. The Museum Foundation made exhibitions in different sites, including in Cavendish Square itself a site of forced removal. Well, the beginnings of the museum, I mean, this is what's so fascinating about it, is that a museum that is dedicated to memorializing forced removals initially makes its beginning not tied to a building. And so it makes its beginning through storytelling, essentially, right? And in some ways, one could argue that it also, it's kind of a prequel to the TRC, because it's this collection of narratives, and it's this very, very deliberate attempt to capture 
the experiences under apartheid of ordinary people. The District 6 Museum emerged just before the TRC began to do its work, one part of which involved thinking about memorialization and what forms of memorials would be appropriate. And unfortunately, the upshot of all of that is that South Africa was given an extremely centralized memorial system at which a singular institution was created on Salvo Cook in Pretoria called Freedom Park, at which South Africans are meant to go and experience their what's called symbolic reparations, with monuments and museums being genres through which South Africans would experience reparations symbolically. But what made District 6 Museum important was that it was not created by the state. It was created by the energies of people who wanted to think about the meanings of a traumatized landscape. And obviously this spoke to Holocaust memorialism. It spoke to all manner of violence experienced in different parts of the world and the workings of memory. The work of the District 6 Museum also spoke to the very concept of museum that was being rethought in different parts of the world. This was a fundamentally new concept of museum, a non-collecting museum, a museum of process that was very much like other museums in Latin America, such as the Museo da Mare in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, but also like some museums in the United States. And the District 6 Museum has had extremely fruitful, ongoing conversations with colleagues in New York, in St. Louis. And these have been very important connections and sources of inspiration because this is work that you have to do in community. You have to do it collegially. You have to learn from each other. You have to test new ideas and new methodologies. The museum has been very lucky that it's had partnerships in different places, including the United States. Whatever I say, remember, is from the point of view of a long ago former member of the Board of Trustees. And the work of the District 6 Museum and the colleagues there continues to be extremely fertile, extremely productive, just beautiful work on the foodways and memories and crafts of ex-District 6s, a beautiful project called Hayscom Base, and other work that has gone in the direction of kind of human rights education. And it's an ongoing project there that is fundamental to this city. This city needs the methodologies of the District 6 Museum to be extended elsewhere. And it's possible to think about the groups of communities and people who have held events and who are meeting from Claremont, Protea Village, Salt River. We have the ongoing struggles down at Two Rivers in Observatory. There is tremendous possibility of a kind of network of memorial and community museum projects, Luandle, Migrant Labor Museum, and so forth. I mean, I think what you're pointing to is that it's an organization that positions itself as a space in which to consider both the politics and the poetics or something. So it's not just a museum, but it's an activist space as well. 
that does activist work. And this is partly why it will find interface with a museum like the Tenement Museum in New York, because there it's about collecting the experiences of immigrants. And of course, the architecture of where the Tenement Museum is, Lower East Side, is somehow, it resembles District 6. Like there's a kind of a resonance there because it's all sort of late 18th century, 19th century. It's also the port city. It's the idea of this flow of immigrants coming into a particular space. Although, of course, in our city, we also have the history of the recently freed enslaved peoples, indigenous peoples managing to find sanctuary in that space. But there's work, I think, around garment workers and factory workers and sweatshops. So it's about trying to find ways in which these spaces connect a history of struggle to the present moment. Because I think one of the crises that we face I suppose in South Africa generally, but also in Cape Town, and particularly around a landscape like District 6, is this abrupt disconnection where continuity is broken generationally. And so generations that come out of that space don't know the space at all. Partly they've been dislocated, and that's part of apartheid spatial planning. But it's also if there is nothing to see but an empty landscape, you have to put a great deal of energy into finding what it might have looked like and where your family might have lived. You write to draw these parallels and these similarities and connections between District 6 and Lower East Side and the work of the District 6 Museum and the Tenement Museum. The Tenement Museum, of course, made far more creative use of reenactment and of making presentations of the past through the technique of reenactment in a space. They would have performers. And that, I think, has to do with the time lapse and with the authority that you have to produce history through the dramatic presentation. And you do it as an ongoing project, as a history project through dramatic license and creating characters out of the actual people who live in those buildings. In District 6, the authority of the District 6 Museum to do the work that it did came from its trust that this was done through a board of trustees that stood in for the public. That is how the work was governed. In the early days, that trust, the members of that trust had a direct connection to the struggles against removal and to the liberation movement in District 6. And I was in a sense, the lighty. I was the, the youngest of the civic association that was able to learn from Owen Combrink, from Stan Abrams, from Vincent Colby. There were those of us there who were academics, myself and Crane Sodin and Lucien Lagrange. But you ask a very important question, and that is about who has the right to do the representation? Who can speak? We can't just answer that question through vacuous notions of academic freedom or the freedom of the artist. I think what we need is an ethical relationship with the experience of suffering and people's experience of struggle. And you're absolutely right. I mean, forced removals represented an attempt to sever people's ties with a place, to create such disjunctures people would not remember, and that people would develop attachments to other places. What's interesting is how this was never the case. The work of the District 6 Museum was important because 
the way in which the people of the district began to be represented in the 1980s at the time in the aftermath of removal was as happy colored people, as gap-toothed, as people who did carnival, as people who sang, and as a kind of set of stereotypes through which people's lives were understood. And remember, District 6 was not a colored area. District 6 was made colored through the removal of African people at the beginning of the 20th century and in the 1960s. District 6 was made colored. And so this concept of a coloredness as the quintessential colored place was a stereotype. It is an absolute lie. The need for serious history to be done was grasped by the District 6 Museum, and it has done so. There were moments of perpetuating the idea of the spirit of Kanala and everyone helped each other. But later on, you have a much more complex history of District 6, warts and all, that is presented in the District 6 Museum. I mean, I'm thinking about two things about a, a conversation with, with Uncle Vince, with Vince Colby, so many years ago, where he talked about how it was very important not to romanticize the area and very, very important to maintain a commitment to history from below. Because if you walk into the museum and all you see are these kind of floating photographs of the icons of the area, it's impossible as a young person to live up to that. And the other thing I was thinking about as you spoke, when you talked about the ethics to tell and a certain amount of an acquaintance with suffering in some way, is just how that also gives rise to a certain, a certain kind of solidarity and a certain understanding. And so the museum was always very, very careful, even from the outset, to not allow District 6 as charismatic as it is to be the stand-in for forced removals and to be the only space in which we think about forced removals. And so I think one of the first things you see when you walk into the museum is a roll call, a dreadful, terrifying, heartbreaking roll call of places of removal. Remember Mordedam, Simonstown, Cato Manor. And that always was, I think, incredibly important in understanding that the museum advocates for strong work of memory and of restitution. And although it's trained its focus towards the district, it's doing much bigger work than just one place. And in doing that also pushes back against these very, very deliberate configurations of coloredness and the area that you mentioned earlier. This has been, as ever, an education. I'm grateful for your time, your expertise, but also your deep feeling for the neighborhood and the way in which you hold the space for those of us who, who come later to think about these things. It seems to me to be the work of one's life. And now I'm going to ask Siraj if you would please do the tribute to the Rices in prison in this particular episode, we're standing in solidarity with Allah Abdel Fattah, Mohammed Al-Bakir, and Mohammed Ibrahim, who are currently imprisoned in Egypt. And as my tribute, I want to read a statement, a poem, a memorial text from the District 6 Museum that speaks to its anti-racist work and its work in valuing the lives of people. Remember Dimbaza, remember Butsabelo, Onverwacht, South End, East Bank, Sophia Town, Makuleke, Cato Manor. Remember District 6, 
Remember the racism which took away our homes and our livelihood and which sought to steal away our humanity. Remember also our will to live, to hold fast to that which marks us as human beings, our generosity, our love for justice, and our care for each other. Remember Tramway Road, Moderdam, Simonstown. In remembering, we do not want to recreate District 6, but to work with its memory of hurts inflicted and received, of loss, achievements, and of shames. We wish to remember so that we can all together and by ourselves rebuild a city which belongs to all of us, in which all of us can live, not as races, but as people. Thank you, Suraj. Thank you for being here with us today. And thank you for your work from which I continue to learn. Thank you to Siraj for his generosity in sharing his encyclopedic knowledge of District 6 with us. This episode was produced by Andrew Burnett with the assistance of Fasti Kalitz and David Versteich. Thanks to our podcast project executive producer, Laura Buxbaum, to the Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Omatoza, and the whole of the board of Penn SA, and especially to our interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Molazzi and Jahan Jones Radgarsky for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of season four of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the US Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and so the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>